Hello, friends. Have you heard of PEMF, or Pulsed Electromagnetic Field Technology? I want to tell you a little bit about the Centropics Cloud. The Centropics Cloud is an at-home bioresonance frequency device. With the cloud, you can protect yourself and optimize your wellness anywhere you go. It supports molecular activation, energy, endurance, performance, rapid recovery, mental acuity, stress reduction, sleep management, deep relaxation, and much more. The cloud has the most effective frequency range of any at-home bioresonance frequency device. With the cloud, you'll experience up to 20,000 amplitudes per second through eight large coils and reach a wider molecular range in the body. Regenerate your batteries and keep your inner vital forces at full speed with the Centropics Cloud. Just visit GetTheFrequency.com or click the link in the description to take control of your health today. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, I want to welcome back to the show, Gordon White. Gordon is an author and chaos magician. His mission is to cohere an evidence-based Western magical worldview that combines history, paranormal, and the best available scientific research in ufology. He has done work for such companies as BBC Worldwide and the Discovery Channel. His website is runesoup.com. Gordon, how you doing tonight? Good, good. Did you get that off my recently updated about page, which I hadn't even looked at for a couple of years, and it was saying stuff like, I still live in London and, and whatever. I don't know how often you update yours, but I was looking at mine like maybe last week and going, oh, none of this is accurate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but now it is. Now it is. Oh, that was, oh, that was good. Yeah. Oh, very good. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's at least still accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like you do, you put all that work into it. It's one of the funny things. You've got a website as well, right? So um, the thing you always forget, or I never look at, maybe only once every two years, is the about page. And that's where everyone who everyone goes first when they've just heard about you. So some of the words you were just saying there, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I did just change that. <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, thanks again for taking the time to do this. Uh, really appreciate you coming back on the show. And, you know, over the years, I've just come to realize that not only is magic real, but it's, it's a part of our reality. And whether we realize it or not, we're probably interacting with it. Um, I'd like to start out with kind of what got you started doing this? What got you started down this path? Sure. Um, I mean, broadly, I agree with you. It's, it, it's some sort of 10,000-foot view there is no difference between magic and and the universe. Like uh, magic might as well be a description of just being in the universe. It's that kind of interactivity between dreams and the interior and the exterior and, and, and the more than human and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's funny. It's a very difficult thing to nail down, which as a result, um, particularly in, in Western contexts, people who end up in magic, um, there isn't too much overlap in, in how they get there. Uh, where we don't have robust magical systems that you can be diagnosed with at an early age and like, oh, this kid's going to be a shaman or, or whatever, right? So in my case, it was sort of like that. I had some very unusual dream experiences um, around the age of 13, which I can't remember. And I should, I keep wondering if I should uh, like do some regression on it, but I, I don't know what the value of that would be, right? Um, and I just sort of woke up one Saturday with... I had some unusual uh, experiences that might have been screen memories of bro broadly UFO stuff or hag attacks or whatever in my early childhood. When I was at 13, I got up one Saturday morning aware that I had some strange dreams. Uh, something had happened and, and I had a little bit of money from refereeing soccer and I stole a little bit more from my mother's purse and kind of walked down the hill a couple of miles to, a, it's gone now obviously, like all good independent bookstores, but about three miles away down the road where I grew up in Newcastle, Australia, it was a really good independent bookstore. And I went in there and I bought a whole bunch of um, Wicca books, frankly, like Llewellyn Publishing Wicca books. 
and uh, and a packet of cigarettes because I was a teenager, and uh, and sat in the grandstand of a like a rugby field um, halfway home and smoked a bunch of cigarettes and, and read these books and and that was kind of the beginning of it for me. That was somewhere in and they, they're low quality books because they're sort of from the seventies and, and and so on, but they are what they are um, and they got me into it, so I should be grateful to them. Um, somewhere in there, I was aware was the uh, the language, the the epistemology I, I was looking for to articulate and and be in the world, and that turned out to be magic. And fairly quickly after that, like that was the beginning of a rabid and continuous book habit, right? Um, fairly quickly after that, I found uh, Peter J. Carroll's books, and he's one of the. He's a couple of other people could be um, implicated in this, but he's broadly considered to be the founder of Chaos Magic. And so I found the, the reprints of some of his earlier books, and, and that was kind of it for me. Uh, I've been really interested in, in magic and, and, and spirit traditions and, and what have you all around the world. But in terms of my home base, it is a sort of very classic uh, Chaos Magic view as formulated by Pete Carroll in, in his books um, when I read them as a teenager. Very good. Now, I cover a wide range of topics on my show, and chaos magic is something I've never personally dabbled in. You know, there's a few reasons, probably one, because it's difficult, and two, uh, you know, I can't find the time, and three, it makes me a little nervous. But, you know, can you explain to the audience what exactly chaos magic is? Sure. Um, It sounds spookier than it is or needs to be is a better way of describing that. Um, Essentially, when Pete and these other uh, occultists in in London, in sort of, in Thatcher's London in the 80s, they're living in a squat in in North London and and so on, and they're experimenting with different magical techniques at a time when the magical scene in Britain was in the toilet. Like, it was really bad. and a lot of internecine fighting over um, different Crowleyan lineages and other boring stuff like that. And there was sort of some hangover of the 70s, um, Age of Aquarius type astrological nonsense. And, and not in the sense that all astrology is, but just like it was a mess. It wasn't very good. So they kind of had this iconoclastic idea of just experimenting with things outside of lineage and, and so on. And Pete named it Chaos Magic because you will recall, maybe you don't, um, there was a very popular book in the 80s called Chaos by a mathematician called James Glake, and it was the sort of beginnings of the popularization of chaos mathematics. So that sort of uh, understanding of randomness and complex systems as, a, as applied to magic is where the word comes from. People think it's some sort of ooga booga scary thing because in the 90s it did get interested in stuff like the Necronomicon and, and what have you. But at, at its very beginning, that's where the term comes from. So chaos magic is you said it's challenging and in a way it is because there's no way to hide in it. I've done a lot of thought around this for better and for worse. Chaos magic's kind of cornerstone thing is get results. And why I say for better and for worse is that uh, to be purely results focused is not an especially good like philosophy or metaphysics to, to live with, to have a personally satisfying life. Um, It is pretty good. If you're going to call yourself a magician, you should get magical results. And, and what Chaos Magic excels at is it hides all the excuses. It just blows them all away. You either, you set out to achieve something with magic and you either get it or you didn't. And there's no, it wasn't my karma or oh, the ruler of my 10th house has a thing going on at the moment, which means that my career stuff wasn't very good. You can't hide any excuses or the mysticism. Uh, it is just you facing your failure. Um, and, and so in that sense, it's really hard because magic, um, Magic does a lot of remarkable things and, and it kind of improves your... It, it, magic is a way of kind of using natural human consciousness capacities to affect changes in the world, right? But as far as parapsychologists can tell, there's only small amounts of changes you can do at once with it. So, like, uh, magic is a campaign and it's not, like, chaos magic wouldn't have a lot of time for people who would set up to... Um, summon to physical appearance 10 dragons and then if you didn't get like what are you doing that for like do you know what i mean there's there's, there's a more imaginal way of getting at dragons and i should know i'm something of a dragon nerd. Um, but if it's if you set out to get a promotion or achieve a job in the industry that you you wish to be in using magic and you didn't get it then 
you have to look at that. And, and so it's a very campaign-based approach and one that doesn't truck with failure, which is its strength and, as I said before, also its weakness. And as you briefly mentioned earlier, um, you know, we had said it's part of our reality. Um, mm. Would it be just a matter of adjusting your consciousness and kind of uh, manipulating this natural aspect of our reality to kind of uh, make it work? Yes and no. Um, I'm not sure. Here's the thing. Consider the possibility we're all always doing it. So in that, in that kind of very American new thought sense where in some sense your thoughts are causative. So your attitude towards the future, not entirely because one of the flaws of, of new thought is that it, it works for the good things in your life. I spoke about this with Macharowicz on my show. It works for the good things in your life, but it isn't very good at describing the bad things in your life. But nevertheless, we all kind of faintly know that there is something causative about our thoughts. Now, whether that's because we can feel the future and, and we're moving towards it, or whether we are literally in the present, having some impact on the future because of our thoughts, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's kind of one of those two, right? This is, this, everyone listening to this, this is, this is telepathy. This is like, that's so weird. I was thinking about it that way and it kind of happened. We, we all have those stories. We have those stories throughout our entire life. That's what I mean by I'm not sure if magic is separate from the universe, because I think we're all always doing it. And so rather than using words like manipulation, what if it's just a slight improvement or even just becoming aware that that is a thing we do? Like if we're suddenly aware, when you sit there and go, hang on a minute, my thoughts are, I don't know how it works, but my thoughts are kind of causative. So maybe I should look into that and maybe there are ways of, of uh, optimizing that causation so that I'm causing good things in my life rather than me being afraid that my wife's going to leave me and then oh, I knew that was going to happen. She left me for the train. Like, um, the, it's, it's, having a, it's having an improved language for understanding how your thoughts and your dreams and your actions are all co-implicated in, in the life that you are living. Uh, and it's a, that sounds a bit wordy, but it, it's the only way you can say that your, your physical actions impact your dream state your dream state impacts your physical actions. Both of them impact your thoughts while you're awake. So co-implicated is a better way of kind of going. It's a, it's a non-linear relationship. And magic has the language that allows us to put that to center that, to become aware that that is a thing that is part of human experience. And also very likely has different ways of, of getting that natural capacity to work better. And could you explain what sigils are and how they are used in this chaos mode? Um, sigils are the kind of perfect example or the perfect technology that emerges from what I just said about causative thoughts and, and so on. And it's kind of like the cornerstone magical tech of chaos magic. And funnily enough, I, I didn't really like it um, for the first sort of 20 or so years, but less of, of um which I, I say it's funny because the people who are unaware, I'm kind of known for it now. Um, I didn't really like it for a while uh, because the sort of nineties version of it is that you kind of would, you, you write out a statement and you, 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 you turn that statement by various different processes into, into essentially a pictogram. So if you're after a job or if you're, you know, a love spell or whatever it happens to be, you kind of, you turn that sentence into a picture. And then in the nineties, it would appear to be, you'd kind of look at it and masturbate to orgasm. I'm like, this doesn't seem super fun. Like, orgasms are fun. Masturbation is fun. This just seems kind of pathetic when you put them together. Um, and what happened when I was in London was uh, I'd had to kind of downscale. I'd moved from New Zealand where I had more space, and I had to kind of downscale my ritual space because London is expensive, and we were living with flatmates in a share house, and so there wasn't actually room for, like, kind of fun, magical stuff. So this was my return to sigils. And I kept, because I work in media, I kept getting made redundant. So I was always on a job quest, right? And, um, and I tried all these different techniques and, uh, and, and found that magic, like sigils in particular, there are some techniques that I describe on the blog and in my books and in the sigils course um, that allow you to kind of add that extra dimension of, of time because it's a really good way of opening that unconscious, conscious, um, discussion in your own mind that allows your causative thoughts to kind of land uh, in a more predictable way in reality. The thing that I couldn't get to work was to have them happen quickly because like I needed a job now kind of thing. And so there's a few techniques there. So sigil magic is essentially turning a statement 
into a picture that your unconscious will understand. And there is something about that process that improves the causative capacity of your thoughts. So that's, that's how everyone kind of thinks it works. I think it's, it's something like that. No one really knows, but it's very easy. You don't have to be... Um, if, if people haven't heard, if you just like Google rune soup and sigils or rune soup sigil magic, the, the article I wrote about 10 years ago will come up and it's got the complete description of how to do it. You, there's no religious implications. You don't need to be of a certain way of seeing the world. It's just you kind of learning a different way of having different parts of your kind of mind speak to each other. That's how we think it works. Who knows? Um, but that's what sigil magic is. And it's a really good example of that. Uh, improving thought causation. Interesting. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about ancient civilizations. Um, now, when it comes to ancient civilizations, it seems like they had sort of, well, humanity had a jump in intelligence all of a sudden. We had a, a jump in knowledge of, you know, uh, you know, agriculture and, and building and, and all these things all of a sudden. Um, and it may not be the theory of ancient aliens, uh, but it could be more of the contact with the spirit world. Is that right? Yeah. So my first book is called um, Starships, A Prehistory of the Spirits. And it's essentially tracking the fact that, uh, and I, I use the word because civilization is one of those dangerous words because it, it implies that there is a progression from, say, hunter-gatherer to something that looks like New York. Like a civilization comes coded with some ways of seeing the world that are quite out of date and often racist. Uh, but the, a better word for it is cultural complexity. Because if you look at, if you compare, say, uh, let's take a technical, let's take South Korea. If you compare South Korea to um, the Anunu people in, in Central Australia, you have, it's almost, there's a technological complexity in one, but an imaginal and, and linguistic and, and musical complexity in the other. So you can track cultural complexity across time. And the idea that we went from less complex to more complex in some sort of gradual move is, is incorrect. Like we, we've actually had a bunch of, it's more like a stock market. It's ups and downs and so on. We've, we've not only been surprisingly complex in a short amount of time, but we've also had like calamitous falls in complexity across a long enough timeline. So the, the story of mankind is complexity and not in this kind of uneven, jagged way. And there is something across time that associates rises in cultural complexity with uh, increasing star law or increasing precision in astronomy and so on. So we see that with the Neolithic revolution or Paleolithic revolution and um, stone circles around the world. We obviously saw that with Egypt. Um, we see that with the 20th century and the rise of the space program. There is something about our relationship to the stars where when it gets more precise, unusual and culturally complex things happen, which is essentially the thesis of the book. It doesn't, as you say, necessarily follow as a result that um, physical aliens showed up in nuclear-powered rocket ships to teach us stuff that, that's not that's a very materialist reading of something that probably did happen, which is um, having different ways of having different inspirations and uh, essentially inspiration, but having different ideas about technology kind of like thrown into our minds from, from, in, in, from another dimension. And crucially, for reasons that we don't know, um, if you look at the, the rise in population and, and technological complexity that's happened over, say, the last 150 years, they're inarguably associated, particularly when you're talking about deep state 20th century stuff, whatever you think happened with Roswell or whatever, like somewhere in that classified world, there is interactions with things um, that is in some way foundational to some of the weird shit that's, you know, um, electrogravitics and, and so on. And we don't know why they're doing that. Remember, you're dealing with entities that have a different relationship with time. And um, for them, our understanding of time is... We, we can't really see the future, but it might be for them walking around a room. So I'm not quite sure why humans get different bits of technology from what I metaphorically call the edge of the campfire, um, whatever the extra dimensional realm is. Because we can't, like, it sounds good, like, oh, yay, we, we learned um, metallurgy and, and, and herb lore and all these things that we have, say, in the, um, the Book of Enoch tells us that the watch is 
the, the version of the story of the Book of Enoch is that the Watchers gave this information to mankind. But that is a universal story. You'll find it with different names in Sub-Saharan Africa and so on. And I'm not sure why they did it. Like, we don't know yet. And, and given how, uh, given that we can now kill ourselves many times over, and that's, that's new. That's only in the last 70 years we've been able to do that. Why? Like, w there's, a, um, there's a different level of morality when you deal with the extra-dimensional. That doesn't mean it's a universal good that we have clever technology. So maybe, maybe there's something behind the idea that for the most part, the stories of where humans get this kind of civilizational tools from is that the demons taught us that. That's the story in Enoch, more or less. That's the story in Babylon, mostly because that's the same story. Um, I think what people are saying there across time and culture is there is a different morality in the spirit world to the one we're used to. So our relationship with innovation, which is, again, co-implicated with the existence of the spirit world, we just need to be a bit, like, it may not necessarily be a good. You're dealing with entities that have a different understanding of time. But that's kind of the thesis of the book, and I think it's a, it's a more nuanced way of looking at the, the quote-unquote ancient aliens hypothesis. Which I happen to think aliens have showed up at least once in history, but I don't think they're the... I don't think they're the primary cause for increasing and decreasing complexity. Check out our friends at Linguistity Gifts. Linguistity Gifts is a metaphysical store offering natural gemstone bead bracelets, signature and zodiac, designed and made in the United States, as well as raw and polished stones, crystal balls, pendulums, tarot cards, natural crystal points, wands, and so much more. You can even get a tarot reading. Their beautiful signature design bracelets can aid with creativity, balance, focus, and well-being. They can even customize the bracelets for you. Just send them an email to find out pricing and availability. Visit their website using the link in the description or visit linguistitygifts.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your first order over $20. Linguistitygifts.com And um, it seems that ancient Egypt is the probably the last real definitive magic dynasty, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, for, for a bunch of different reasons, and, and even at the time people knew that. So I, I can't remember... And there's a sort of classical world notion that of the, the whole planet or the whole world was given 10 parts of magic and, and Egypt got nine of those 10 parts and the rest of the world had to share one part. So even at the time, um, in the Hellenistic era, people kind of knew that there was something special about Egypt. Uh, and, and it's true. And, and by the time that we kind of have a, a, like a civilizational overlap, which is in those first few centuries AD, um, the Hellenistic era, by then, the dynastic Egypt was long ago. Like, when you think about we're closer in time to uh, classical Alexandria than they were to the pyramids, because we're only like 1,500 years, and they were 3,500 years. So when, when uh, Egypt had its Greco-Egyptian cultural flourishing that gave us all the, um, all the recognizable tools of Western magic from the directions to the use of circles to the way we uh, invoke and all that. That was all part of this uh, Greco-Egyptian blend in the first few centuries AD. We are closer in time to that moment than they were to the builders of the pyramids, whoever and however that happened. So Egypt is not just special. It was so special and so long-lived and so seeped in magic and, 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 and the success of it that by the time our understanding of magic happened that was largely forgotten. They had no idea who, <laughs> they had no idea how to build the Great Pyramid uh, in the Hellenistic era. I find that fascinating. It's something else I find fascinating is it seems that they were preparing um, for for the afterlife, basically with with their. Oh, sure. uh, they, it was, yeah. Um, the, I think, if you look across the planet. Uh, like, I've been obsessed with Egypt since I was a kid. Um, the, it, peaking in the Old Kingdom, mm. peaking in the Old Kingdom for, like, uh, kingly magic, uh, if you think of the, the, the sort of end of the Old Kingdom, bearing in mind that Herodotus broke up the, the dynastic Egypt into Old, Middle, and New Kingdom, right? If you think of the Old Kingdom as the end of 
the Stone Age. So the absolute peak of the Stone Age, rather than like the beginning third of, a, of an Egyptian story, it makes a lot more sense because they were playing, this, playing a game of stone um, at, at a level that is the, what we do with chemicals and, and, and uh, uh, electromagnetics now. Like their technology was stone and they were liquefying parts of it to make pyramids and, and the full language of it. It was the peak of a 10,000 year kind of like uh, industry of, of humans learning the language of stone. After that, it kind of falls off and Egypt kind of goes into recovery. But the bits that, the bits that fall into Middle and New Kingdom from that peak um, are a, an understanding of life and death and, and again, their complication or the fact that it's, it's sort of the same thing continuously. An understanding of that that hasn't been equaled anywhere in the world. Like even playing Senate, so the board games that you see uh, Egyptians, Egyptian nobles playing on the wall paintings of the tomb. Senate is a game of crossing the Nile and back. So, and there was something about playing that that made, it was like practice for the afterlife, like practice for you dying and, and heading across to the, the western shore of the Nile, but crucially, also the ability to come back. So even in their gameplay, what they were doing was kind of like teaching themselves the mental tools to survive the process from life into death in a coherent way and also remain in dialogue or the capacity to come back to, to the living world. And that's just a board game. That's not their songs. That's not how, you know, um, their festival cycle or anything. There's literally a board game that's essentially shamanic training. The Egyptians were playing. It, it sounds gloomy because we have an unhealthy relationship with death, but they were playing life and death in a way that no other civilization ever has and and i find that fascinating because it sounds gloomy we think death is the end but they were just on this whole other level of how that works to to have a conception of the physical and non-physical components of the human so that you have your name and you have your spirit and you have your soul and you have all these different bits this was all designed to get better at moving the right things to the right places into into the afterlife or eternity and that if you spend thousands of years doing that which they did um you get pretty good at it you get pretty good at anything after a few thousand years i can imagine and there's so many theories on to what possibly the purposes of the pyramids were do you have any thoughts on that well, it depends which ones. In general, if, like usually when people ask that, it's they're talking about the Giza complex. Um, That's a as, Giza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's my best, I think the entire Giza complex was um, an, an immortality machine. So it was a map. It was a representation of the afterlife that also was in the afterlife. And if you look at the fact that um, Robert Bavall, I think, is just open and shut on this, whatever it was, 30, 40 years ago, when he's looking at the Orion Belt stars and, and the three main pyramids of the Giza complex. We forget that there is different temples and tunnels and, and all the rest of it. And, and crucially, um, the Giza Plateau is on the western um, side of the Nile, but it's also on top of an area that is um, pockmarked with um, a cave system because it's sort of sandstone and so on. So, even 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, when there were just, you know, people living along the Nile, this would have been a place of the afterlife because it's already on the western side of the, the lake and it's literally an, uh, the river and it's literally an underworld. So it would have ritually been a, a map of an equivalent to the underworld for tens of millennia. And over that time, different ways of um, ensuring their own immortality were built. And it was, it, it peaked with the, the old kingdom complex there where the use of sound and stone and ritual was done to ensure some sort of immortality process and we kind of know that from the archaeological evidence that shows that foreign dignitaries and were coming to Giza and if it was just a tomb what are they doing what are they doing there? but if they're there because it's part of a like this is sort of like if you want to make sure that you survive into the afterlife this kind of use of music and, and, and resonance and percussion and stone and, and particular alignments, which we don't know, like we just kind of know that this piece is there. It's like having a crashed UFO. Like, um, the, the use of sound and sonics in, in the Great Pyramid means something. The use of deliberate stone choices means something. We just don't know what we can guess at what they are, but someone knew, someone knew putting these things together. So there is something about 
uh, the Giza complex, it makes it a immortality ritual, almost like theme park. <laughs> Very interesting. And would you say the uh, Egyptian gods, for example, would you say they're actual entities or representations of certain energies or something like that? In a way, that's All more... Yeah, kind of. And because they went for so long, Egypt had Egypt went in and out of different ways of conceptualizing the universe. And it pretty much depended on which city along the Nile, which priesthood was the most powerful at the time. So you've got like Theban and, and, and what have you. And, and that's why you kind of go from the king being kind of like the main god, um, although all the Aeneid is in place in the Old Kingdom. And... But it kind of moves up and down the river. Sometimes Amun-Ra is, and sometimes Ra, sometimes wherever, the Heliopolitan cosmology. All in all, what you get with the Egyptian gods um, is sort of like a personification, although they are kind of like half uh, animal as well. They were personifications of, um, I guess, like the energy that, built the universe so if you look at the the kind of parents and grandparents of and then like child gods like horus if you, if you kind of go up that family tree and you translate the names you're actually looking at a a way the priesthood thought the universe was put together so you kind of have like um polarities to begin with like wetness and dryness and from them you get those have kids that are different kind of like notions almost like uh, physical forces in the universe. And then by the time you get down to things that look approximately human, you're all this way down a, down, a, um, down a manifestation of how the universe worked. As to what the laity thought, as to what the people who were just working in the fields thought about the gods, we don't really know. But like the, the priesthood probably had something very modest. Probably they had a sense that the universe was all sort of one thing and the gods would wreck would at least once you're in the new kingdom the gods would represent um, different facets or manifestations of this oneness uh, and depending on which god was kind of top at the time um, like amun ra or atum ra atum means the hidden one so atum ra is kind of like well the atum means it's hidden so it's it's almost like the name means the manifestation of ra so um atum is the kind of unmanifest stuff of the universe and ra is the first thing and and so you kind of see in in the text that they had that 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 approach to it. But as for like the rank and file, um, who do you pray to when when your daughter is sick? Who knows? Like there would have been a lot more to do with like local city gods and and even family ancestors. That's probably one of the main reasons for them getting so good at necromancy. Is um, it's it's very unlikely that the um, the state gods would be particularly interested in a, in a peasant daughter's illness, but her grandmother, who is dead, might be. It's like it's the same as any other time. It's like the saints and 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 God and Jesus once you get into you know uh, medieval Europe. Very interesting. Now I want to switch gears a bit. I'd like to talk about psychedelics. Now my personal experience with psychedelics. Unfortunately, I was a stupid teenager. I was doing it to get high. You know, I was just doing it for recreational purposes. Um, if it would be now, it would be under a much more controlled um, situation. But, you know, I, I don't have access or anything like that. But the psychedelics, they can actually be used to access realms, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Um, some of them are realms, and, and some of them can be used to access it. So um, I'm kind of in the, uh, the the mechanic camp that the mushroom in particular came from space. I don't think that's a sufficient uh, explanation for ayahuasca, having just come back from a month in Peru and, and, and over two weeks in the jungle with a shaman on full dieta doing ayahuasca. Um, don't think the mushroom is much more an off-planet experience when you encounter it at high doses. Um, and when you, you typically go into mushroom space when you're at like a high dose mushrooms, and then you and the mushroom kind of go through this um, perfect recall of your own memories, in, 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 depending on what you're journeying for, which is really, really fascinating. But ayahuasca, you do, um, you do appear to go to like the spirit world um, and you do appear to experience 
the sort of inside of, of the physical world. Um, so yes, absolutely. Uh, and those are just the, the, like the two that people think of. Um, the artificial ones like LSD, I actually, I really enjoy them like as a recreational thing. They're not as good journeying aids. They are quite good at, uh, at, at that kind of classic Huxley doors of perception thing where um, you do become aware on LSD that how you like experience the world from a sense basis. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because yeah. even as a teenager, that's what after experiencing LSD, there was a distinct difference in the way I perceived reality. I noticed yeah. that like right away. Well, exactly. And that's why that's, you know, where the title comes from, Doors of Perception. It's very good for that. And that, that is, that has a lot of medicine. That's a really medicinal thing to, to just be a bit humble about your own senses and, and how you perceive the world and how that may be, not that it isn't accurate, but maybe there are other ways of perceiving the world, right? And, and so LSD has tremendous value in, in, in that sense, but from a, almost like, this is a problematic term, but whatever, almost like from a classically shamanic sense, when you're dealing with, uh, if you're in ceremony, you're better off, I, I think, with the more natural um, versions of it. So you're better off with psilocybin mushrooms and you're better off with um, ayahuasca, especially in, a, uh, in the context that I did it, like, if you can get yourself to the jungle with a shaman, um, it's life-changing stuff. Uh, not everyone can. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, sure. Like by the end of it, you. So when you go in dieta, um, you like a diet. Like there's no chemicals of any kind. So there's you don't even get to use um, toothpaste or anything for the two weeks. Two weeks you're in the jungle. Uh, and you are sort of, you diet with different plant teachers. So in, in addition to ayahuasca, you're allocated, depending on what you're coming there from a healing perspective to have, um, you, you diet them. And, and the reason is like, and, and you definitely experience it probably from about the end of the first week on, we are so interrupted by our EM environment and by the chemicals we use that we think are beneficial for us. And even ones that are beneficial for us, we utterly disrupted in our capacity to interact with like um, the spirits of the living world and, uh, and and they can't get in it's the weirdest thing because as you kind of go through this cleansing process um, all of a sudden you're in much more you're in dialogue with the jungle around you and you can you can experience the plant spirits in you working as intelligent entities not just like when you take a xanax or when you take some sort of prescription opioid and you can feel yourself like high um, you can feel an entity in you doing the thing that like you can feel the plant spirit. And so in that sense, it's astonishing. Um, and what you become aware of by the end of it is that on a cosmic level, there is an understanding of medicine and healing that is, it's almost like, which we sort of know, like I guess people who listen to a show like this would know that, but there is a correct and, and finite or fixed system of healing that it does not look at all like western medicine that um is just you can you experience it and realize that it is that whole kind of classic alternate thing of um your goal should be um holism rather than like a replacement of something that's damaged and it by the end of the two weeks it's just utterly utterly changed it's remarkable stuff but what ayahuasca why she's a different entity to mushrooms is that it, um, our interface with her requires two plants. So it's not the cheaper plant spirit, right? Because you need the actual um, copy vine and the chakruna tree kind of cooked together to, that's what ayahuasca is. So that's what makes her extra unusual, which is here is an entity that isn't ju like just, like the mushroom is, just the, the spirit of a, uh, of a fungus, right? Like this is some, this is a, definite distinct non-human entity whose whose natural interface requires these two plants so she's something else it's really fascinating and you you experience her as that as that separate um healing entity and particularly when you're in the hands of a you know an accomplished ayahuasca whose entire job and has been for decades to be essentially you know a priest of ayahuasca and when you're talking about basically contacting entities have you ever, you know, had basically a contact experience with entities uh, while on psychedelic? Well, the, uh, oh, 
every time. Um, the ayahuasca one in particular was by design for that. Like you, she is a separate being. And we went essentially to her temple or her lands and uh, for healing. And that's her job. She's a healing spirit. I say that's her job, like she works for us. It's more, um, that's her function or agreement with mankind. Um, so there, there was no, uh, if you haven't done it, uh, there's no convincing you that the only way of understanding the experience is as ayahuasca as a as a separate being, rather than well you are high and and it obviously has some sort of medicinal effect. It's not that exact. It's not just that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I guess my, what I was fortunate with is that I do have some experience over the last couple of decades of. Um, entity contact anyway. So when it did happen, I can lean into it or I don't find it as weird uh, or, or what have you. And, and so I, I got, um, yeah, it was a good experience for me, put it that way. Now, I believe it's DMT that you hear the term machine elves. Have you heard this term? Can you sure. explain what that is? Um, so dimethyltryptamine 4 is the active ingredient. This is such a... Um, materialist understanding and you notice that if you do ayahuasca um, rather than smoke dmt which i've also done um when you do ayahuasca you realize that it's almost like taking a bone or a lung or something out of a of a, an organism and saying it's the same like this is this is ayahuasca it's like it's not it's a lung like um that being said uh it is the um we have receptors in the human brain that uh function with DMT because the human body actually produces it in low levels. So it's, it's the most powerful hallucinogen on the planet and it's also one that the human body makes. When you smoke it, so let's, let's say you, you're essentially taking the lung out of uh, ayahuasca as an entity and, and freebasing it, um, you are much more likely to get into the, because she's a healing spirit, you end up in a realm where machine elves or mantids or whatever, it looks faintly like a very classic Whitley Strieber communion style um, experience. Uh, not, not traumatic like that. Um, they're aware you're there and they, they kind of fix you and buzz about you and so on. And Terence McKenna called them the machine elves. Now, when you do ayahuasca in, in, a, in ceremony, the way I just came back from doing, you, don't, you, you get the healing. And one of the nights, it, she kind of turned the, the ritual space we were in into essentially like the strange triage. So you sort of being fixed by this cosmic snake is fascinating. Um, but a couple of the people who were on Dieta with me would like, because we'd all talk about our experiences the next day. Uh, a couple of the people had encounters that were very mantid like, and I said, well, that's the McKenna machine elf. So no, not really sure how it works, but if, if it's almost like if you do ayahuasca wrong with speech marks, and I don't mean it wrong in the, I don't mean it in a moral sense, but if you, if you uh, approach that entheogen as a molecule, you will get a kind of machine elves experience. If you approach ayahuasca as ayahuasca, you'll still get the healing, but you will get the healing the way, let's just say she likes to work. Uh, and so the machine elves are entities in kind of like ayahuasca space. Well, it's so named by Terence McKenna. Like they, um, they, the kind of mantid classic UFO description is, about as common, if not more common. It's, Terence was very lyrical, right? So people who've had that mounted experience when when you say, well, Terence McKenna called them the machine elves, they're like, yeah, that was it. But for, for a lot of people, they look more insectoid. Uh, and th that sounds creepy. Um, it's not that creepy when it happens. That's fascinating, man. Um, now, would you say any um, experienced magician has basically a relationship with otherworldly entities? I think everyone does. Uh, I, I think, the, like, I think the magician, um, he or she just learns how to talk back. So, um, for instance, uh, one of the things, especially if people presumably listen to a show like this, are familiar with Graham Hancock, and he wrote that book about 10 years ago, a bit more now, called Supernatural about his experience with different um, psychedelics around the world, principally ayahuasca. And, um, and so most people know that the purge is, is a big part of it. Like you very often spend a lot of the night. It's not even fair to call it vomiting. Like it's, it's a different, you, you're just expelling all this stuff. And I, in my major purge experience over those two weeks, 
um, I was aware that the stuff that was pouring out of me into this bucket, which looked like by the end it sort of transformed into the head of a snake, just almost joyously taking all these agreements and, and all these memories and things that don't serve me anymore just kind of fell out of me. And what was really fascinating is so many of them were decisions I had made as a child or agreements I'd made with little entities, little passing by entities, not consciously, but a decision I'd made um, because my father had yelled at me. And so I made, it's almost like you, over the course of your life, you make tens of thousands of little pacts, little pacts with entities that are like, all right. And, and, and it was weird, all this stuff fell out of me. So I think, well, you can make a case that everyone has relationships with um, spiritual entities. Uh, but perhaps the magician, if he or she is any good, and maybe I only got good last month, but if he or she is any good, it kind of um, asserts some sovereignty over that and, and ends some of those relationships that no longer serve you and, and can seek out others. But in, like, in the classical sense, yes, if you look at English witchcraft in, say, the 15th, 16th, 17th century, there's a big emphasis on familiars. Um, you get the same thing across uh, indigenous spirit traditions in Africa and New Guinea and, and, and the Amazon and so on. It, it, you know, a a person, male or female, who wishes to be that interface between the sort of waking world and the spirit world has allies, has has allies that they they work with. But I mean, I think everyone does. That was the, that was the kind of like, if you look at the rise of spiritualism in the U.S. in the 19th century, a cornerstone tech to that, a thing that was so tremendously appealing was its, its horizontality that like it, women could be involved and you'd have to be educated and all that stuff. But also that each person has, and it's true, like maybe not exactly spiritualism true, but each person has their ancestors and, 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 and guides and, and, and things that go with us on this physical journey because being on earth is kind of difficult and, and it's really freeing. So I think everyone has them. I think within magic there is there are ways that resonate with some people and not others as to how to take those interactions to the next level. I'm wondering if you're having regular contact with, with these entities, the dynamic must be very different than communicating with a human. I mean, you know, how would it be the difference say between communicating with an angel or a demon? So it's the logic of it. Um, it's a weird way of describing it, but, when people start this stuff and you know i mean live your own life but maybe don't start with a demon but even if you start with um even if you start with an entity that you think is comparatively benign and and it honestly might be like okay my spirit guide like so like i call on my my um my highest spirit guide to you know show up like help me out let's let's start this conversation you're not sure and this is a this is a faulty or, or false equivalence because it means we haven't thought about what the the imagination actually is anyway but you're not sure if it's in that old sense in some way this is in my head like i've i've made this up by the way that's uh, i had this whole rant about the imagination but like i've made this up that's what you kind of think as you go through it and even if you do it like in a ritual setting where you kind of the room suddenly feels a bit different and you're like, well, that just might be the incense and because it's dark and whatever, like, am I making this up? Uh, and then whatever you've asked for, and if it's just contact or um, whatever, the results will show up in your life in a way that you could never have landed on. A human mind would not have followed that line of logic. And that's it. So that's the difference is you, you will never... Um, far from the realization that you are dealing with non-human entities when you're dealing with angels because they just don't think like us. And, and so the results will show up in this really unusual way that demonstrates that here is a mind that has a different view of time and, 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 and space and so on. So you'll get like, it, it'll be a whole bunch of different colors. A good example, earlier this year, I was at a ancestral lineage repair workshop uh, in Melbourne. And so I'm there working on, in, in ceremony, working up... Uh, one of my ancestral lineages. It's what we were there for. And I encountered this spirit that apparently declares himself to be an ancestor, Uncle Jim, uh, London cunning man in the 1600s. And because I have a background in magic, I'm like, uh, 
spirits will tell you all kinds of crap. This is good advice for people. They will tell you everything. Like, oh, listen to me, I'll make you rich. And like, make me rich and I'll listen to you. It's, it's what the magician says back. Because the spirit world delights in getting us to do things in the same way we're so excited when telephone telepathy or something works. Any of that kind of cross the divide thing. They are super impressed with themselves when they can get a human to do something. Just like we're impressed when we can get a spirit to do something. So I'm like, no. Um, this, this event was in Melbourne and I live in Tasmania. So it was a whole other island. And so I say to Uncle Jim, all right, if you're who you say you are, you have 24 hours to prove it. Now, that's difficult because I'm in an Airbnb. And so all I'm doing is like going to the workshop, going back to the Airbnb, going to the workshop, I'm not seeing anyone. It's just me there on my own. I'm not living my normal life. No one knows I'm there. Nevertheless, I tell Uncle Jim, you have 24 hours to prove that you are a London cunning man uh, up my lineage. And so I go back to the apartment of the Airbnb. And on the way there, in the little street where it's on, the guy is actually two doors down. Um, so he lives there. So I get chatting to him. Um, and he's from Singapore. And um, I smoked at the time, and he still smoked. So we sat outside and drank and smoked. And he was the son of not one, but two cunning lineages. So cunning man is like the right person. Cunning woman is like the non-witch way of saying, like, tribal village healer, right? Um, and his family, his mother and father, um, both dead now, were both from different cunning traditions in Singapore. And we spent the entire night, like, I mean, the whole night, talking about um, frog curses and, and different healing methods and different stories of what it's like to grow up in a family of cunning folk. And, and so I went back the next day to the workshop and we go back into ceremony. I'm like, all right, Uncle Jim, I got the message. Because there is no way, like, it could not have been more clear. And it's that logic. And it was that kind of, I dared him, like, okay, you have 24 hours. And I, I got not one, but two cunning lineages. I spent the whole night, because I was kind of thinking to myself, there is no way you can do this unless I sort of turn on Netflix and maybe watch a witchy show. There's no way that the, the, I, I would spend the entire night having, like, a cunning person revelation. And yet I did. And yet I sat there all night with this guy from Singapore, we're still friends, um, talking about the different lineages that come together in him and, and frog curses and all this like proper stuff. And I'm like, that's crazy. That, that's the sort of logic. That's how you can tell you in dialogue with the spirit world because it does stuff like that. It does stuff like that. And you go, that doesn't, something is real here. I don't know what it is, but something is real here because that, is a very, very, very unlikely thing to have happened. Wow. Would you say that um, quantum physics is modern science's way of trying to kind of access these realms and understand them? No, certainly not at the moment. Um, I would say at the beginning of quantum physics, so in the, um, in the 30s, all those people um, were all Vedantists, so they, were all, they all had that kind of European... Um, somewhat romanticized slash racist view of Indian philosophy. Um, not that that's, I mean, that is wrong, but like, not that that's bad. Um, that was the kind of cutting edge sort of philosophy or metaphysics a hundred years ago. And so the beginnings of quantum physics were, uh, there was an opportunity there to kind of make the universe alive again. Um, and, and they didn't take that opportunity. <laughs> the sort of last 70 years of physics has gone in the opposite direction, which is um, ruining the results of, or ruining the implications of quantum physics by trying to keep it materialist as possible. That's how you have like the, the many worlds hypothesis, because it is verboten for anything other than material to exist. So rather than saying that something can um, be in a, almost like a never-never state, it has to always exist. And so in the, the biggest violation of Occam's razor you could ever come up with, each individual micro moment in the history of the universe creates yet more universes. Now, the definition, what Occam actually said was do not multiply unnecessarily. That's what Occam's razor means. We think it's like the simplest explanation. That's not quite it. It's do not multiply unnecessarily. So there's probably a way of understanding the movement of the planets without saying invisible angels are pushing them. Don't multiply these invisible angels. That's what he was saying. And yet we have cutting edge physics going, oh, well, at every single micro moment, an entire universe exists. Now that is the limit case for multiplying unnecessarily. So um, 
quantum physics is a, is a failed attempt to put, I guess, life back into the universe. Fortunately, I think the 20th century, 21st century belongs to biology in the way that the 20th century belongs to physics. So, um, so their moment has passed. Like string theory doesn't work. Um, it's never worked. Uh, it will not work because it's, it's sort of mathematics games built on a false view of the, of the universe because it thinks the universe is dead and without meaning. So that'll never work. But in biology, there's some really exciting things happening. People are sort of realizing that there is a difference between things that are alive and not. And I know that sounds obvious to people listening, but the official scientific position is that there isn't. There is no difference between a cauliflower and a cloud. They're both mostly water in the same shape, but like there is, like one of them is alive. <laughs> and so we're starting to understand that uh, biology is really exciting this century because we're looking at how life works in communion, how, how forests think together and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, the physicists can, you know, go hang. Um, they, they had their opportunity and they lost it. Uh, the 21st century mercifully belongs to biologists. And, and I'm, I'm quite bullish on the idea that the world, the Western world, because everyone else never lost it, but the Western world re-enchants. In our lifetime, the official position is that we do in fact live in a living universe because we're, you know, alive. And that's a radical statement at the moment. It's, it's obvious to us, but it's a radical statement. And, and I think the savior from a science perspective this century comes from biology, not physics. Yeah, very well said. And nowadays, <clears throat> I'm looking at TV, I'm looking at Netflix, and I see so much occult symbolism. I see so much shows about witchcraft and the occult. What do you think is happening here? Do you think it's some kind of um, indoctrination or preparedness for something? Or what do you think is going on there? It's a great question. This comes back to kind of my throwaway rant a few minutes ago about like, well, what's the imagination? And I'm very much in a kind of like, I, I say back alley Jungian um, perspective. So I, I think a bunch of things are going on. I think at, at moments like this, fourth turning, whatever you want, um, at moments like this in a in, in the sort of stage that Western civilization is at, it's just getting towards the end of our dominance. Let's, let's describe it that way, right? Um, a lot of stuff bubbles up in, in the collective unconscious. A lot of different things get closer to the surface. So if you look at the, um, the fall of Rome, um, it was filled with soothsayers and, and, and crazy castrating cults and, and all the rest of it at the time. Uh, and we see a similar thing. So empires, the collapse of an empire um, is prefigured by the kind of, by an infestation of witches and sorcerers. So I think in a majority basis, what we're seeing in all these kind of witchcraft and devil shows and, and so on, in particular with Netflix, on a majority basis. What I think we're seeing is that these archetypes kind of like get closer to the surface of all our minds at, at this point in time. That said, that is not the case. Knowing that doesn't preclude different shows from being uh, propaganda. And, and I think both are in play. I think for the most part, I, and I think if we want to have a propaganda discussion, we kind of have to have broad agreement that that's not the only thing that happens in culture creation. The other thing that happens in culture creation is in some sense, our collective imagination is, is reflected back into us in a media economy. And, and importantly, it's an economy in the sense that, oh, which remember when like teenage um, young adult supernatural romances were popular like 15 years ago? It's the same sort of thing. So there was an explosion of them. And a similar thing is happening now, at least in part, which shows are popular, so let's make some which shows. But, but why are they popular? And they're popular because they say something to our unconscious at this point in time. So I think if we can kind of broadly agree that, then we can drill into, well, which which, which is which. Um, are there other kind of agendas at play on this landscape? And I kind of think maybe yes. I don't think, as far as I can tell, I don't think it's that sort of lurid, um, uh, lurid right-wing Protestant Christian idea that, that people are going to be tricked into like worshiping the devil or, or becoming like a devotee of Crowley. I don't think that's what's in play. I do, however, think that there is a, um, Sabrina is a good example. So I, I do think there's a, there's a repositioning of uh, how we talk about power and gender and all these kind of other flashpoint ideas 
in an occult context. I do think that's in there somewhere, but I don't think the popularity of these shows is because, like, you know, George Soros wants us all to be Satanists. I don't think it's that. Um, but I like. Th there's never been in the history of um, 20th century media, whether it's cinema or TV, there's never not been um, intelligence community manipulation. There's never not been like the, the Jewish owners of the the um, of the 30s, um, like shit, MGM was owned by like you know famous Jewish families, and they're all cutting deals with the Nazis to to make sure that they don't have make sure that the heroes don't look too Jewy, make sure that they look a bit more Ar uh, Aryan so that these shows can be played in Germany. Like there's always been, and not just like the CIA, there's always been intelligence communities at the back of media because it's so powerful. And, and you look at it now, I mean, the, um, the Hollywood um, films that come out now are quite clearly propaganda for like imperial expansion that's behind the Avengers movies, all the rest of it. It's there. So it has to be there somewhere in Netflix, especially when you put the Obama on the board. But I don't think it's a one-to-one -one that the prominence of the supernatural in culture is because there's some agenda to turn people into witches. Very good. Now, um, something else, something I'd like to close out talking about is the UFO craze that's going on right now. Um, I am of the mindset that the UFO phenomenon is something so much more than we could ever understand. I don't think it's just physical ETs. I think it, you know, it has a, a deeper connection to possible possibly the spiritual realm or other dimensions um, but it's not just uh, these you know green creatures coming visit us that being said what do you think is going on with all these leaks and this this blow up of this um, UFO culture right now funny you mention that um, next month I'm giving a I'm gonna be in conversation at the Guggenheim in New York if people are around for an event called Technology's Habitat with Dr. Diana Welsh-Pasulka, who wrote the book American Cosmic, which is sort of one of the books in the um, in this curious renaissance of uh, the kind of like original UFO narrative. And that's how I'd like to frame it, which is if you look at the 20th century UFO story, um, it is in large part air cover for clandestine Cold War programs. So um, it's much easier to, if you're testing out experimental aircraft and different methods of mind control and ray guns and, and all the other crazy Cold War things that happened in various underground bases. Uh, the UFO is really good air cover for that kind of stuff, especially as you can kind of deny it as well. And there's an extra level to that op, <clears throat> which is, and this is Roswell related. Um, I think a lot of that story was directed at the Soviets um, because it's imagine the consternation in the Kremlin when they work out that the Americans have got their capitalist hooves on a flying saucer like it changes the <clears throat> it changes how they view the US threat right and curiously enough here we are in, in another sort of five years uh, last five years or so a bit less three and a half years of being improbably terrified of Russian aggression, non-existent, um, and it's coinciding with the return of the same idea that the U.S. military has all this ARV, you know, um, reverse-engineered UFO tech, as we, as we, as the West, but in particular the U.S., is kind of swinging its dick again on the world stage at, at Russia and China. Now, I find that curious. I find it curious that all of a sudden it's the exact same story that the UFOs are from space. They crashed a bunch of times and we've turned their tech into all this like weird, crazy thing. And also that they're somehow still around. Um, and so you're getting the air cover, you're getting the, the cover story again for the presence of aircraft that aren't officially supposed to exist in the sky. And you're also getting that same narrative, which is that the US military, which is already, um, what is it like? It's more than double every other military combined in terms of official spending is not only ahead in, in dollars and, and hardware, it's also like dimensionally ahead in the, the implications are it has electrogravitic craft and, and all the rest of it. Now that is, whether that's true or not, the fact that the story is out there in the world now is definitely an op, at the very least directed at China and Russia.
So I think that's what's going on with the UFO renaissance. I think the idea, I think we've had 70 years experience of listening to um, whistleblowers who also happen to be intelligence agents. And at some point, we kind of have to have the self-respect to go, I don't believe you. Your job is to lie. You've, and you've been lying for 70 years. I do not believe you. I absolutely believe you have some weird shit in the underground base. And it might come from alien tech. I'm all on board with that. But this current narrative, when, when intelligence agents show up to tell you something, it's because it suits an intelligence goal. And so that's, and I think more people this time around are on board with that, I think. I think the, um, if you look at the, uh, not a special, not especially good uh, outcome or limited success of like the To The Stars Academy. I think, um, I think there are hopefully enough people who've been around ufology for long enough to go like, I'm not, this is, it's like the same story again. It's the same, you just rehashed it. And uh, I think that's what's going on. I think it, even if, it, the, what, the funny thing is, this, this analysis is completely true, even if it turns out all of that secret tech they have really is based on alien vehicles. It's still nevertheless true that the way the story is coming out is at least in part for geopolitical reasons directed at other countries that, you know, the West might be in military competition with. Wow. Yeah, that, you know, I don't trust it either. Um, <laughs> that's all I can say. The sources, you know, anything coming from our own government, how could you? How could you trust yeah. it, you know? Yes. Is it your first day on earth? Like, what, what's what's happening here? That, I agree. I agree. Like, I will listen, but not. I will listen not to be not to believe it. Like, I will listen because I need to know what the liar is saying. You know, it's not. <laughs> um, and and there's a there's a certain level of intelligence that you can derive from that, which is like, okay, well, and that's how you can extrapolate out into geopolitics. It's like, well, why is this story once again coming out in this way? And it's it's to do that same thing to kind of put. Um, the half myth, half reality of the capacity of this clandestine technology into um, into political discourse again, and 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 it's, it, that's happening inside Washington, but also crucially, it's happening um, on a geopolitical basis. Well, Gordon, once again, awesome stuff. And once again, I had a list of stuff so long that we could have talked for another two hours. So we'll have to have you back on again. Anytime. All right. Well, you have a great night. Okay, you too.